Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino, and I've been lucky enough to attend a couple of really interesting things here in Melbourne lately in the wine business. Um, one of which was uh, a special event. It's the second time they've run it. It's called Pinot Palooza, which is a, a big event dedicated to that one variety, that classic variety, Pinot Noir, uh, run by um, Bottle Shop Concepts, who, which is the brainchild of Dan Sims, uh, producers from around Australia and New Zealand all came in to speak their wares. And, uh, and I was helping behind the scenes with that, which was lots of fun, lots of great booze, uh, some good food too. That was held at the St Kilda Town Hall. Um, a really fantastic event. The other thing that I went along to was something that's called Wine Baptism of Fire. And this year was the inaugural year for this event. Uh, it's basically a program designed to allow people who have never made wine before to get that experience. Um, basically, five different teams were um, chosen. They were partnered up with uh, a very experienced winemaker to advise them about what they should do. Everyone was given the opportunity to take a parcel of Shiraz from the Mount Langy Garan Vineyard in the Grand Pins. And I went along to the release of the wines uh, from the 2013 vintage. And they are now available for purchase uh, in vintage seller stores in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, essentially, it was an opportunity to, 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 to look at these wines all made slightly differently. Uh, four wines were all red and one was a sparkling rosé, which was quite, quite different for the, the, um, the two girls who were uh, given Mac Forbes as their advisor. Uh, and um, a lot of the competitors were sommeliers or other people involved in some way in the wine industry or just wine lovers. Results are pretty interesting. The wines are really fantastic. Um, they're all young, of course, because um, they've only been made about six months ago uh, and freshly put in bottle. But um, you know they were given really good fruit, so uh, it's hard not to make a great wine from it. So check out Wine Baptism of Fire on Google and find out where you might be able to taste some of the wines with some of the competitors. So today my guest is a guy by the name of Luke Lambert. Uh, who originally hails from Queensland. Luke makes wine out in the Yarra Valley, uh, a region very close to my heart, and really is doing something different out in the Yarra Valley, working with some possibly unfamiliar varieties in the region and possibly in an unfamiliar part of the Yarra Valley. So um, I've invited him in to have a chat about his background. So thanks for joining us, Luke. No worries, Jess. Nice to be in. So take us back. Back, 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 back to Queensland. Yeah. Um, so I grew up there, went to school there and left as soon as I could pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 I, from a relatively young age, knew that wine was maybe going to be my thing. So um, that was always going to be somewhere else, I suppose. And the Yarra Valley was kind of always in the radar. So. So what was it, you, if you knew that wine was going to be where you would go, what, how did you get introduced to wine? What, what was your introduction to wine to, to put you on that path? Yeah, I don't know. it just kind of happened, I guess. You kind of, I got exposed, you know, my folks were keen wine drinkers and mm-hmm. so wine was sort of always around. Um, 
and for some reason it just kind of made sense sort of so like, yeah. an osmosis kind of yeah i guess so yeah you kind of <clears throat> you know what it's like when you're a teenager and your palate's changing a lot and you yeah i mean you're going through adolescence totally yeah it's a savory and and salty and and kind of dry red wine just eventually sort of made and like when it sounded like my language sort of like thing. when you're young and you don't like vegetables because yeah, they taste really bitter yeah. actually i read um a little while ago that the reason why things taste more bitter is um as a poison to like, like detecting poison right so if things taste bitter you the idea is yeah that tastes yuck and, and you spit it out yeah and that's part of the reason why i think young kids um taste more bitterness in in things like broccoli yeah um and so when when you get into your teens i guess that's when your palate sort of changes and you actually appreciate more savory things that makes sense okay and did your parents sort of would they were just wine drinkers or was it yeah wine no wine drinkers incorporating wine into cuisine and stuff like that yeah it was always there and um i guess the kind of wines that they were into was sort of mature hunter valley shiraz so yeah um not big wines a medium weight kind of you know low alcohol not oak driven things Mm -hmm. that was sort of the first wines that i started drinking do they school holidays or holidays Visit yeah. wine regions. So parents were, yeah, occasionally I'd be dragged to wineries, and um, yeah, I guess that was kind of not an aha moment, but like, wow, that's actually kind of something quite magical. And the whole process, sort of, yeah, when I eventually sort of understood how wine was made, was just it seemed like the most amazing thing I'd ever kind of come across. That it was just this raw material. It was grapes that, yeah turned into something that had amazing longevity and, and perfume and, and actually made food, food taste better. It was like, that's <laughs> that I would need to be a part of that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of how it became a part of something that I just had to, had to go and do. Was there ever a, like a, an agricultural kind of element to it? Like um, At that stage, there's, there wasn't for me, no. I guess so I went into it pretty, in hindsight, I didn't was pretty cockeyed. Like I went mm. overseas after I left Brisbane and... And over there, I was drinking more widely and drinking European styles of wine. But when I enrolled to go and study winemaking, I, I didn't have a very good idea of what, what being a winemaker involved or what. Yeah, it, it was a little bit naive, I suppose. And it worked out so, great, but the, the love of viticulture and growing grapes came came later. And now for me, okay. that's, that's far more interesting than winemaking and far more important. Um, but at the time, no, I, yeah, I can't quite explain it. Huh. Just, I just, it just, it just seemed like what I really wanted to do, and what I, and I also kind of had this thing where I was able to um, sometimes see things in wine that <clears throat> uh, maybe some people weren't kind of thing. I felt like I kind of had a read, like on an extra sensory perception. This kind of wasn't a superpower or anything, but I was able <laughs> to, I was just able to kind of pull the things apart in my head and, sure, and okay. kind of assess them kind of easily. As far as like a sensory kind of flavor and smell sort of thing, that that almost, was always that was always kind of easy for me and um, almost in like a reverse engineering kind of yeah way. a little bit yeah okay um, and that's still you know the biggest part and the most important part of what I do is just being able to pick up a glass of wine and and decide what needs to be done in a in a nanosecond sort of thing and okay. I have you know very few other skills but that was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of one that was always came was sort of there a little bit I guess yeah and so when you say that. You know, you reached a certain age. You wanted to get out of Queensland. You did that by literally getting out of the country and going and, and spending some time in in Europe. Yeah, so, that so was 
that was after you finished high school. Yeah. So that was um, yeah, which was amazing, and yeah, to go um, to go and try wines that I you know had, you have don't have access to certainly not in in Brisbane. Let alone, you know it's. I mean, in, in in Brisbane, let alone today. Yeah. Compared to back then. So it was it was an eye opener, and that was just kind of sealed the deal that to try wines that were. Um, yeah, just an extra dimension or several dimensions in flavour and complexity and, and, and just, yeah, lift. That was it. I, I was kind of sold on it. And were there particular, particular countries or regions that you kind of felt more of an affinity towards? Yeah, it was Italian wine that I guess kind of made the most sense to me in a way of looking at wine and saying, yeah, that's what wine should be. Yeah. And more Australian wine could, you know, perhaps follow the... Like the shape of Italian wine, it should be it should be leaner, but it should be drier. Yeah, um, you know, it should be lighter on its feet, but it should, should still be dry, dry wine, right? It should still be compatible with food and make you want to yeah. eat more. But that doesn't mean it has to be heavy. It, Less overt fruit. Yeah, and okay. we have like that's the, and that was the thing. It was like you try, and I had, you know, I was familiar with lots of the fruitier styles from Australia. It was like. It was clear that there's a there's like a baseline of fruit in all Australian wine because we have so much sun, right? It's like mm-hmm. inherent. Yeah. But when I started to get into wine and learn more about it, it was like, well, why are we trying to accentuate accentuate the fruit that we already have in abundance? Yeah. Why not kind of – yeah, it's there. It's always going to be part of Australian wine, but why not try and make something a little leaner and more savoury in style? There's, I guess there's lots of reasons why Australia, the bulk of Australian wine went the other way, right? It didn't – it didn't follow the Italian model for how to make wine. It, mm. it it was all about retaining fruit and making concentration and power yep. the highest priority because if you wanted to charge a lot of money for your wine, you had to have it powerful and had to have it really make an impact. And mm. maybe the that was because we were kind of relatively new to the thing and we didn't quite get yeah. wine and what its role was that but if you were going to go out and spend 30 bucks, which is, you know, that's not inexpensive. That's the beginnings of expensive for wine. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wanted to taste it. Right. And yeah, of course, I think maybe you want to know it's too critical, but that's, we got a little bit carried away with that in the nineties. And certainly I think it's a, it's, a, it's a case of, um, that's what Australia became known for. Yeah. Um, and you probably would have been able to sell a lot more wine, not just in Australia, but in the more more important uh, export markets. Um, so that to to be an Australian wine, that was kind of what you needed to do. Mm. Um, I think there was probably a lot of areas that it's particularly not suited for, um, and therefore the wines probably became a little bit out of balance. But I guess, yeah, to a certain extent, I think it's it's more about opportunity, like where you can sell your wine. Yeah, and, maybe and it was people yeah, expect. just as much as that a timing thing of, yeah, this is brand Australia and it's big. And yeah. That was that was probably a contributing factor as well. But I, I'd always sort of, you know, my the ones I'd enjoyed most but weren't big. They were quiet and, yeah, they had drive and they had structure and they had um, – Concentration, but they weren't big wines. They no. were medium body intensity, but not intensity without, yeah. without you know blowing your head off. So when I you know decided that that was it, I wanted to go and study winemaking. That was the plan was always to start my own label and and come at it from that direction. You sort of almost immediately kind of worked out if I'm if I'm going to do something different, then I have to do it you know on my off my own steam and under my own label. Yeah, and that was kind of. The magical part about wine and getting involved in those early days, yeah, um, 
was the fact that you could kind of do that. You could go and, you know, buy some fruit and actually create something that was what you wanted to do. You know, you can actually shape something that was a natural product. So then that, that I found really attractive. So sure. it was, was some, this, this completely raw thing that comes from, from dirt and water and sun. And, yeah, with a little bit of tinkering here and there, you could kind of create something that was individual and a thumbprint of not only where it was from but the style of wine that you wanted to make. And that that was very exciting for me. But before you studied, you, you sort of understood that, that wine was a product of raw materials and you had enough experience at that point to sort of look at the finished product and sort of work out, okay, I know what I want to do. That, that the next step was to study and to kind of go, okay, well, I need to understand what, what's in the middle and, and how to take it from uh, this point to this point. Um, where, where did you study? <clears throat> so I, um, I went to uh, Wagga Wagga and I did, did the wine science course there through Charleston. Charleston, okay, yep. So, yeah, I can remember making um, <laughs> enrolling basically from a phone box in London to come back to study um, <laughs> so it was pretty it was pretty cockeyed but um yeah i just remember making the decision that that was it and yeah just the first steps were i just <laughs> I remember being in a phone box and making inquiries about how the hell i went home and studied winemaking yeah and yeah and a few months later kind of yeah finalized it all and yeah not long after that i was in wagga in the middle of nowhere studying wine how was that uh, i was in, a bit mind-blowing yeah it was again it was exciting it was like so this was uh, 14 years ago now but um yeah it was an adventure like I was young and I knew knew exactly what I wanted to do I just mm-hmm. um wasn't sure how to go about it but I, this is when you were what 20 yeah so yeah I was 20 um that's pretty amazing to sort of have a, like a crystallized picture of where you were gonna go yeah and I get asked about that a lot and I just I don't know how to explain it. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, pretty much. And, I think you um, are. I think there is some superpowers in there. <laughs> not at all. No, I don't know. I was just a bit singular. I don't know. But, yeah, um, single. Yeah, mind. I'd say. I don't. Some really, might say bloody-minded. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and the Morgan was, um, in many ways, it was disappointing and a waste of time. But okay. In can can in you other ways, would you care to elaborate great, on and that? I would 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 not change it for anything. Um, so I guess what I learnt at Wagga, and I should say now that the course has changed quite a bit since I went through, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, when I went through, it wasn't really what I wanted to know about wine mm. kind of thing. What what the focus was in those days was um, more tailored for people who wanted to go and work in larger companies and um, what the, 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 not the not the you know, make a few barrels and run your own race kind of thing. I didn't learn any skills from... But look, we had the same conversation with Dave. Uh, he, he went to the University of Adelaide, uh, similarly uh, didn't have a wine background, didn't know anyone, and everyone he was studying with, you know, probably um, children of uh, wineries, winemakers, um, and had a similar... What what it seemed like, and probably was the same with Charles Sturt, it wasn't necessarily geared towards what a winemaker wanted, but possibly what the industry needed. Yes, uh, and and that was because the particularly the bulk market um, branded wines, brand Australia, as you say, was growing so rapidly. That was what was needed. Was basically um, 
soldiers. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, effectively just sort of... People are going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I understand why. That's, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's mm-hmm. a direct link from what was happening in the industry and what Australia wanted its wine industry to be. And Now, on the other <clears> hand, I think <throat> it's a very different story. I think it is, yeah, because the whole thing's contracting and, um, yeah, the course has changed a lot as well. And mm-hmm. So while that, that, that aspect of it was like I kind of I left, you know, three years later and I was like, shit, I don't know if I'm going to use any of, <laughs> any of what I've just learned about wine but, but in the future. I had but. the same experience when I was studying wine business. Um, I came out of it because I'd, I'd already been working in, in marketing and wine marketing and I came out of it thinking, well, now I know what I don't, I don't want to do. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a process of elimination, understanding what it generally is to go, well, I'm going to find something else. I'm going to, I'm going to follow a different path. I know exactly what I don't want to do. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't want to be completely down on the course in Mogger either because I learned some great stuff and the tastings there were, you know, to, to go from, yeah, in, and again, in hindsight, not knowing a hell of a lot about wine, but knowing that I loved it, to sitting down and having, you know, numerous blind tastings a week and, and really kind of tearing apart you know what you what you were seeing flavor wise and and sensory wise mm-hmm. in a wine that was that was amazing and then to to meet a whole bunch of people that were kind of there for the same reason and to drink wine with them after hours was and to do it all blind that was essential and invaluable kind of thing from a technical and scientific perspective i guess it's a good idea to know exactly what you might need yep. just to understand it but but to not necessarily use the <coughs> techniques or the or the equipment yeah, the, the chemistry of wine, yeah, that's important. Um, you know, anyone can learn that by going to work with someone who knows how to make stable wine yeah. for a month or so. Yeah. And the most talented half dozen winemakers I know in Australia have never opened a textbook or, or been to no. any kind of thing. No. So, yeah, it's um, managing fermentation and stuff like that. That's important and that is kind of science-based. But mm-hmm. if you're doing it in the right spot from the right vineyard, in a gentle kind of hands-off kind of way, it's a natural process to turn grapes into wine, and mm-hmm. um, you don't have to manipulate kind of things. So yeah, the more the, often the more science you know and use, the the worse the outcome is, I reckon, in winemaking in particular. So, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, because the it's just human nature that you want to interfere. So the more information you have in a in a wine, the numbers you know if you're sending off everything for lab analysis and you know you have sheets and sheets of paper, but telling you about what your wine is doing, the more likely you are to to actually act on it and do something. And the less you can do in, in mm-hmm. the life of making a wine, the, mm-hmm. the absolute better it will be. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I make the distinction between um, using science to to understand and observe. And then using science to interfere. Yeah. And and if you're using science to manipulate, um, then then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. If, if if you're having to or if you're having to use science or technology to to manipulate a wine, then you haven't got good source material. You've by the time the fruit gets to to you to then craft it into something, uh, you can't fix it. It's it's there it's already too late. Other problems. That's right. And. Again, that's not what wine's about. Wine's no. about, uh, you know, the, the very natural, the most natural process that, that there, there is kind mm-hmm. of thing. And and I kind of get that, like I we was saying before, that courses must exist because in theory we must have an industry that produces this amount of litres to, yeah. to feed supply and that's not all going to be great quality. But 
That's going to be serviceable. Kinda, yeah, at the same time, again, if you look at, if you go all the way back to and look at the way viticulture is taught and where we're planting vineyards, then if changes were made there, then winemaking as you know, a tool and an act wouldn't be as necessary kind of thing. You know? Yeah, it's interesting you talk about <laughs> We'd that. We have an entirely different industry. Because, so. um, <clears throat> I mean, I remember when I visited Julian Castagna earlier this year and he talked about the, the, the partly to do with phylloxera, but all the vineyards that were planted in fantastic regions in Victoria, um, you know, good, cool climate um, regions, all these vineyards had to be pulled up. And then I had to shift the effectively the wine industry to into South Australia, which was a lot warmer. Um, but then they kind of worked out, oh, if we if we use irrigation, then we can get really good crops and get plenty of fruit, and then everyone's going to make money, kind of thing. And in a way, that was almost a, a, a the worst thing that could have happened to the wine industry because it completely changed the shape that it might have been heading in. Uh, and so it really did sort of shape. Um, what viticulture became and and subsequently what Australian wine became. Yeah, wine is one thing that, you know, should oh, what am I trying to say? I guess I guess, you know, if if in hindsight the 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 larger production kind of area of, of Australian wine had been in Victoria, had been in cooler climate areas, had been on s- slopes, hadn't been on, you know, flat broad acre viticulture, maybe it wouldn't be as large as it is now. Maybe it mm-hmm. wouldn't have been that boom in the eighties and nineties. But maybe it'd be better. Maybe it would be. But at the same time, maybe Australian wine wouldn't have been put on the map because they would have said, "Oh, you know, this cool climate wine's not as good as a European cool climate wine." I think possibly to a, to an extent, um, they needed to have these really big, sort of juicy, um, full-bodied, particularly the red wines, and maybe these nice, big, rich, buttery, oaky Chardonnays to actually be different to the European wines. Um, for people to sort of go, oh, okay, and stand up and take notice and then taste them and go, oh, yeah, I quite like this. It's different to this mm. European wine. You know, I, I, I get, you know, this, there's, there's lots of fruit and lots of flavors. I get this kind of wine. And and now, I guess, uh, but of course, the difficulty is, is convince the rest of the world that Australia does make cool climate, elegant, restrained wines um, when it has established this really strong connection with wines made from sunshine effectively. Yeah. And I, I get that, the argument that, um, you know, just reaching people and getting them into Australian wine, getting them exposed to it, no, no matter what, no matter what the wine is, as long mm. as they're drinking something Australian, I have a problem yeah. with. Like, and the classic example yeah. recently is Yellowtail and, you know, what's happened in the States. And <clears throat> I was there early in the re- earlier in the year and they don't want to know anymore. It doesn't matter mm. that, that they have sold X million cases of Yellowtail at you know, relatively low prices mm. to lots of people. Um, it's kind of muddied the brand of, you know, the country of Australia. Mm-hmm. So there's, and there's, it's very difficult recovery from that position as well. So I kind of maintain that, yeah, you do things once, you do things right, and there's no quick, uh, there's no. no quick fix to anything, particularly not in wine, because everything happens slowly. And if you try and, you know, make things happen fast, then usually you shoot yourself I, in the foot. I think this is probably one of the big problems with um, wine. I mean, not necessarily in Australia, but in the new world is that we're all just a little bit impatient and we kind of expect things to happen much faster or we, we, we get some success and go, oh, fantastic, we've made it. And then when things sort of turn away from us, we're all sort of throw our hands up and yeah. confusion kind of go, I don't get it, you know. And, you know, the fact that, I mean, wine has changed 
countless times in Europe over the last 5,000 years. Yeah. So, so to expect things to continue the way they're going in the new world um, without change is just, it's, it's foolish. Yeah. And as a, a, a business model, you know, taking generations to establish a, ban- a, a brand mm. or a wine or a vineyard or anything is, is very difficult. You're only, only the crazy or the very passionate do it. So yeah. I kind of get why people try and invent things and push them hard. And, but yeah, you're right. That's not gonna, that's not gonna fly, particularly not in wine. And so, if, if we kind of rely on the amazing things that we have in Australia, which is like endless, there's, there's so much opportunity for awesome expressions of every single, within every state. Mm. And even the warmer regions and even, you know, um, you know, even some of the w- very warm and kind of flatter areas, there's, there's great opportunities to make. Um, primitivo. Very great primitivo. Plant the right varieties and, and there's endless opportunity to do mm. amazing things here, but... Um, but uh, so okay so you, you so you got, you went through um the studies so you're a qualified inverted commas qualified winemaker um and you had an idea about what kind of wine you wanted to make so so did you pretty quickly establish the own your own winery or did you, were you working vintages yeah so i was working it's kind of bouncing around trying to get as much experience as possible mm-hmm. um so yeah, I worked in quite a few regions in Australia and Italy and New Zealand, and um, yeah, tried to save up a bit of cash to start my own thing. So after wow. um, when I finished uni, that that was kind of that was the focus. I bought some small batch equipment, and while I was kind of still, you know, didn't really have a home as such, and bouncing around, I, I was kind of getting ready to to make my first wine and. And do that in the Yarra Valley. Well, at what point did you get introduced to the Yarra Valley to sort of know that that was going to be your um, home? Yeah, so that was that was a wine kind of experience. It was I can't um, remember the exact moment, but they were the the wines from the Yarra Valley were just what I I, I liked. They were they kind of ticked every box for me because they were they were always very elegant. Um, Mm-hmm. kind of savory just food compatible and and pretty well handled a lot of the wine wine that was being made you know in the in the 90s and and the 80s in the era was was kind of european in shape and style mm-hmm. and that just appealed to me any particular influences uh yeah easy it's mount mount mary yearing mm. yearingberg those guys were you know at the very pointy end of what what was victorian wine i, I think you okay know, f- from um you know, from the eighties onwards, sure. And they all made just beautiful classic styles of um, of cabernet based wines for the most part. Um, that they just, yeah, they just spoke to me. They was just like, yep, that's that's what Australian wine can be and should be. There mm-hmm. should be more of of this style of wine made here. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of drawn to 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 being there, not necessarily to make cabernet based wine, but I just knew that that was that was a place where you could you could make late ripening varieties and. Um, and that they would kind of, you know, be in a similar vein to those those yeah. producers. One of the things that possibly people don't realise about the Yarra Valley is that it's a very big region. Um, geographically, it covers a big area, and there are a lot of different areas within that. There are a lot of microclimates, um, different elevations, different aspects, that kind of thing. Um, so sort of to consider the Yarra Valley in, in, in a certain way is sort of fraught with peril. Um, and 
there are sort of certain wines that it's known for, but even within that, there are going to be different expressions. Um, what were your sort of early uh, experiences in terms of exploration of, of the Yarra Valley? So I was <clears throat> um, very lucky. When I left uni, I got a, a job um, at Coldstream Hills just as a cellar hand. And so whilst you were working there, they gave you the opportunity to do a bit of exploration of... of well, no, it was all there. It was all at the doorstep because, the you know, being owned by, I guess in those days, it was South The amphitheatre? Yeah, the amphitheatre block was is the winery. But, yeah. um, I mean, because it was South Corp and they, you know, they were putting quite a bit of fruit through there. It was a relatively large winery for the Yarra. They were okay. sourcing fruit from one end of the valley to the other. So right. across, you know... The, the four distinct fruit zones, the soil zones, I should say, and, and a whole bunch of different aspects and everything was kept separate. So it was amazing. Even though it was, you know, a medium-sized winery, it was lots and lots and lots of small batches. So mm-hmm. to be able to, fresh out of uni, kind of roll up there and, and get first-hand experience in everything from fruit to wine of a whole bunch of different microclimates and soil types and track them the whole way through it was yeah it was was awesome it was the, probably the best training i've had i reckon and did you start sort of tinkering at that point so that was um kind of where i found the, the parcel of land that um i wasn't familiar with like the the yarra valley um most people who go there and visit and go and visit wineries um, either go to the, the valley floor where most of the bigger wineries are or they'll go up to the southern end, the Gembrook kind of side of it. So the valley floor is almost like a triangle sort of between Coldstream, Yarra Glen and Healesville. That's right, yeah. yeah. And then the southern areas, that's sort of from Seville all the way up to... Yeah, to Warburton almost. To Warburton, yeah. And, and behind like the that, Warburton Highway, yeah, basically. Jambrook, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the northern end is kind of the De Bortley's end. So yeah, Dixon's Creek. Creek yeah. Three, okay. three very separate and distinct parts of the Yarra. And like you said before, they're, you know, they deserve to be their own kind of regions because they're so different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Coldstream source fruit from from all of those sub-regions and often from different vineyards within those sub-regions and often from different blocks within those vineyards. So yeah. it's just like, yeah, this is this is great. I was um, exposed to the lot. Um, and I remember the day the, they had Shiraz, um, which we'd kind of laid out for the first time after vintage and we were looking at the wines. You know, they were basically new, newborn wines, mm-hmm. post, you know, fermentation, and, and they were kind of sitting there as finished wines and a whole bunch of different... Um, parcels of, of often you know only a handful of barrels and i came across one um particular lot of, of barrels that was from um an area called st andrews which at that stage i wasn't really familiar with i hadn't been in the area that long but i'd um not been up there and the wine was different again from the the other three sub-regions it was mm. like this whole other kind of level of savoriness and it was it was bright and fresh but it was also, you know, really Italianate in the in the mm. kind of the style of wine. Okay. So I was like, "Where's that? That's that makes sense to me," sort of thing, and and was told that it was in this kind of um, not often visited part of the Yarra, and it was mm. in the far northwest corner, and um, went up there and saw the vineyard and um, struck up a, a, a business relationship and friendship with the grape grower and sourced the fruit. So that was the start of it, pretty much. It was. That's where it all started. Yeah, you know, I didn't have I didn't have any money. I was not nowhere near in a position to go and buy a block of land and do it. (laughs) 
that I would, <laughs> would never have got there, but I had enough money to buy some small batch equipment and buy you know a couple of tons of, of grapes. So I was just thinking long and hard and, and about where the fruit was going to be from and from working backwards, looking at the wine and then visiting this, you know, elevated, rocky, windswept, you know, basically god-awful but very beautiful kind of rustic, mm. very Australian kind of landscape. It was really kind of um, tough conditions up there. But you go up there and there's this very beautiful part of it and that, that was where Rising Vineyard was. And, um, and yeah, that, that, was kind of, that was kind of it. It just felt right. So okay. the, the following year I, I bought some fruit and made some wine in, in my garage and um, that was, yeah, 2004. So initially it was Syrah, Shiraz? That was, yeah, that year I just made some Syrah and the following year I saw some Nebbiolo as well. From, so he, from, he already had Nebbiolo planted? No, that was from Heathcote. Oh, okay. Um, and that was, um, I guess... From the from the northern part of Heathcote? Yeah. Okay. So the far northern end of Heathcote. Um, and really when I first, going back again to when I first got inspired by wine, it was, was Nebbiolo that really made me sit up and go, sure. that, that is... You know that that's what I need to go and be a part of, kind of mm-hmm. thing. So yeah, but there was very little of it planted anywhere, certainly not in the Yarra. Mm-hmm. So, but there was a vineyard in Heathcote that I was able to source and um, and make some fruit of, and I did that you know, as a first wine in two thousand and five. And then um, you were able to convince the, the the vineyard owner to plant some Nebbiolo in the Yarra. Yeah, Valley. so it's always been the plan, the 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 wine that. Um, uh, I now make a, a quite a few wines, but Nebbiolo has always kind of been the one that, you know, that's what I really wanted to devote everything mm-hmm. to. And um, and it's certainly a way to sort of distinguish yourself, um, particularly in, in a region like the Yarra Valley, which yeah, is so strong in, in, in varieties like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and the Bordeaux varieties to, to sort of be doing something. It's not even French. It's it, an Italian variety in the Yarra Valley. is It's pretty bold. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily to be contrarian or to be alternative or anything like mm. that. It was just kind of because, I mean, that was, you know, in ways that was a good thing because, yeah, it was different and people just kind of took notice and really the Olive from Australia kind of thing, but I, it was I would, so hard. I, I would argue that it, it, it is uh, uh, symptomatic of your uh, single-minded ballsiness. Maybe, but I... I <laughs> It was so that was nice, but the hard part was that no one knew what the hell it was. So sure. particularly in the early days, you know, I, um, you know, I threw everything at it and I made these wines that were from a vineyard that wasn't wasn't particularly well suited to the variety at all. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I did my best, and yeah, I'm really proud of the wines that I made from that vineyard. But mm-hmm. to go out and, and sell them when there was very few people yeah. interested or listing, yeah. I mean, it's slightly different now, but. Um, yeah, it was it was quite hard in those Thankfully. days. Yeah, I mean, particularly with the Italian varieties, it, it really does sort of take people to sort of persevere with them, and yeah. um, I, I think to a certain extent, potentially, um, it maybe might have been a perception of Italian wine, um, and the fact that Italian wine has improved really dramatically just in the last twenty years, sort of pre nineties, there was not a lot of good Italian wine coming in to Australia. Yeah. let alone being made in Italy. 
And so, uh, whereas with French wine, French wine has been fantastic for however long. And so there's no, there's no doubt that you can make great wine from, from, from French great varieties, but some sort of, for, for people to sort of persevere and say, no, you know, I've tasted the, the wines in Barola, I've tasted wines in Barbaresco. I know that Nebbiola can make fantastic wines and I think they, we can make them here in Australia. And then, it, as you say, it's a question of where it comes from, the Heathkit region, possibly a little bit warm for, um, for the Nebbiolo. And so, yeah, to sort of, pers- but, but to still persevere with a variety and say, no, we can make great wine. And then sort of establish it uh, as a, I guess, a category in itself to sort of then plant it in somewhere like the Yarra Valley, which is possibly a little bit more suited to the variety. Yeah. So that's, you know, and that was um, (coughs) a big step forward is being able to, you know, have uh, a couple of growers that um, didn't think I was crazy when I suggested that maybe some Nebbiolo was a good idea for the Yarra Valley that, you know, um, they kind of believed in the, the the project, and and yeah. So from 2007 onwards, we started grafting some bits and pieces and various clones of Nebbiolo into the Yarra. Where did um, you source the material from? So initially, it was from the Heathcote Vineyard. Okay. And even so, just as I you know when I look back and it, yeah, it's kind of it's a chunk of time. It's 10 years sort of thing since I started making wine. But <laughs> what's happened in being able to source Nebbiolo and yeah. make Nebbiolo and the clones that are available is very rapid. And like you say, the market as those, well has changed. Those charmers, they, they It's actually very swift. But in, that, in, that, in 07, all we could really lay our hands on was material from the Heathcote Vineyard. Yeah. Now there's, uh, you can have your choice of any of 15 different clones. And, and um, if you look at Nebbiolo as a variety, um, it's the most diverse kind of variety that there is in my view because there's so many different clients available and they all mm. make very, very different wine and grow mm. very differently. So to start up with a, a project with zero information, not knowing even if it was going to be warm enough in the era to ripen Nebbiolo and only really having this kind of old clone to work with to the point where now, you know, how many years on that is, six, seven, we've got a, you know, a spread of clones across a spread of vineyards and I feel like I've got a chunk of information to know what is going to work and mm-hmm. what will work going forward. Um yeah, it's been awesome. There's mm-hmm. been lots of failures, but there's been <laughs> some ground made as well. So, but you've now got enough vintage under your belt to to essentially know the best way. You're pretty involved in terms of the viticulture side of things and sort of saying you know, what what you'd like to happen in the vineyard. Yeah. So, and like we kind of touched on earlier, that's you know, grape growing is where it's it's at. I mean, mm-hmm. winemaking for me is pretty settled. I know what works in the winery i know what you know the mo is as far as what you know how i make Syrah and nebbiolo and it changes a little bit year to year depending on the conditions and the fruit that you get yeah basically the broad strokes are the same you do as little as you can to manipulate a wine and 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 what that means is that yeah everything everything 90 percent of the decisions and mistakes or advances that can be made happen when you pick fruit so that the you know mm. the job's already either won or lost at that point so all of all of the very important decisions are made in the you know 120 days of growing season from spring onwards, I reckon, mm-hmm. um, and even more so from Nebbiolo. Um, other varieties like Cabernet are quite forgiving, and there's fewer options in how to grow them, and and you know the, the vine physiology doesn't change a lot. But Nebbiolo is just like the ultimate mm. crazy, mm. fickle, unforgiving thing. It's like 
Um, yeah, and that's part of the allure. So many it? variables. A lot of variables. So you now make um, how many wines? Uh, so there's some rosé, chardonnay, sparkling chardonnay, Syrah, Nebbiolo. What do you make? What do you make the rosé from? Uh, Nebbiolo and Syrah, so it's a blend. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. So you you're increasing the range a little bit. Yeah, and that's I mean that's um, trying that's, different things. Which trying is different things, exciting. I guess, more than anything. The focus, um, yeah. Is, is has always been on Syrah and Nebbiolo, and that's what I've made, you know, since '05 as a pair, and that yeah. they're the wines that. Um, but the yeah. Chardonnay, but the I have Chardonnay, to say, is, the Chardonnay is something very special for me. I I really like that Chardonnay. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great Chardonnay in the Yarra Valley, but um, I I I I think that Chardonnay really spoke to me when I tried it. Thanks. It's yeah. I'd, that came about um, by accident. I guess mm-hmm. it was. We had a very difficult year in 2011, and it was very wet. Mm-hmm. And um, up until that point, I'd always sworn I'd never make white wine. My focus was <laughs> only ever going to be on Nebbiolo and a bit of Syrah. And um, I don't know why I was bloody so minded. Maybe that was it. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, but it was such a, a you know. Um, at the end of summer, it had been so wet and there was so much disease pressure that harvest was looking pretty dicey. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I just thought that I needed to keep the lights on, basically, and I thought I needed to buy some white grapes to make some wine. Otherwise, I'd end up potentially with nothing if I mm. went until April and May and, mm-hmm. and harvest amounted to zero. So, um, yeah, I, I bought some Chardonnay from St. Andrews and, um, yeah, made a, a table wine that's slightly different in style and some bubbles as well. And, and the... Some bubbles. Now, this is something that I haven't seen. Well, I've actually got a bottle here, James, oh, and this will exciting. be quite a moment because it's um, show and tell. It's show and tell because this is uh, this will be the first cork popped of any bubbles I've ever. Oh, I feel very it's, special. <laughs> it's only just been disgorged this afternoon, so for, um, there we go. Whoa! Sounded right, didn't it? All right. So this is it's uh, this is sparkling chardonnay. From St. Andrews from 2011. So this is the first one that I've, I've So this made. is this traditional method? Yeah. Okay. So, so it's effectively, is, I mean, it's Blanc de Blanc. Yep. Um, just a happy accident, I suppose. And now it's, you know, it's going to be a permanent feature. So this is from the 2011 vintage? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's it's kind of a nice thing to have. It's only it ever be small production and it's because it's all hand done it's such an incredible amount of work i actually sat down and thought about it today and i thought oh my god that probably accounts for less than five percent of total volume that i've made Mm. (laughs) in that that particular year but it would easily account for half of my working hours yeah like it's intense the amount of that's one of the joys of um, method traditional sparkling (laughs) yeah it's it's um but it's been worth it so I, i i quite like the wine and it's a different style it's quite different aromatically. It's almost in a kind of marmite kind of area, which is really interesting. There's, you know, the the Lee's contact has only been twelve months, so the dead Lee's left, dead yeast left in the bottle before disgorgement, which is what happened today, has only been, you know, not a long period, but it's the pickup has been of that autolysis. The Vegemite character has been has been high. Um, whether or not that's because it's a wild yeast ferment or because I don't filter the wine and there's no. kind of carrying turbidity, I don't know. I, 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 I can tell you, um, I definitely think it's it's that wild yeast and and that unfiltered character. It's it's much more savoury than you would expect. 
and, and I'm surprised that it's only spent 12 months on, on the lees in the bottle. Yeah. Because so, that savoury component is <clears throat> really speaking out volumes. So when I, I it kind of, this kind of came about, it was like how, you know, what do I, what do I like about sparkling wine? What do I want mine to look like kind of thing? I mean, it was the first question. And I looked at a whole bunch of sparkling wine from Australia um, and it was interesting. I'd never really sat down and kind of thought seriously about it, but they were all very austere, very skeletal, kind of hard, mm-hmm. not all of them. There was some that had, you know, some suppleness to them, but I guess I was critical about the ones that really were trying to emulate champagne and be mm. super fine and super elegant, but kind of his, hit, missed the mark and... In fact, just looked skinny and sure. hard drinking. Sure. So the plan was to make something that was, you know, at the other end that was picked a little bit later. So it was kind of riper and had more fruit, mm-hmm. um, was less driven by acid. So this is actually quite a broad and, and mouth-filling wine. It's almost like a table chardonnay with bubbles in it. Almost. I, it's, I, it's very fascinating. I, I really like this, actually. I'm really happy with it, and I've. You would, you would, to see that kind of level of um, savory character, you would expect it to have sat on leaves for about six years. Yeah. Part of what I kind of wanted to do differently, and what I was shooting for, is to not be protective with the wine. I think a lot of um, people who make sparkling based wine mm-hmm. are very careful about it, and they will use a lot of inert gas, a lot of sulfur dioxide to kind of make sure they retain every ounce of kind of pristine citrusy fruit. Yeah. And that was, I did the entire opposite. This wine was basically Plenty of filtration too. brown juice and filtration is like the worst thing I think you can do if you want to make. Um, so this was, you know, has seen a, a chunk of air in its life. It's kind of been knocked around a little bit, but mm-hmm. it still has perfume and charm and stuff, but it's, it's the other end of the flavor spectrum. It's not driven by citrus. It's driven by earth and straw kind of characters. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, what sets it apart. And it's a, you know, it's a unique, special vineyard grown in a difficult year. But mm. we, you know, we manage it in, in a way that only very good fruit came into the winery. And it's um, certainly not an area that's known for sparkling base wine. No, not so much. I think um, it, it tends to be that, as you said, the um, yeah. sort of the southeastern area. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, and so you've. You've just been disgorging and, uh, and bottling, and then you're going to leave that for a little little while? You're going to label that up and it's Yeah, that be... will sit. Probably not for very long, I think. Um, Hoping yeah. to have that input out by the end of the year? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, awesome. Start of summer, I think awesome. people hopefully want to find bubbles somewhere. Perfect time. Yeah. At least here in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about... what? So in terms of your wines are currently available... Uh, in Australia, are you doing any exporting? You yeah, exports. You'd, you'd, you'd spend some time in, in yep. the states. Um, so that's yeah, I probably export. Uh, this year will be half of what I make now. So mm. um, that's nice to be able to, you know, have several markets kind of spread around and um, and to be able to go over there and talk sure. to people and talk yeah. about Australian wine and I think you know present something a little bit different to what they're perhaps used to seeing from Australian wine, particularly in the States, and to be able to tell them that, well, you know, if you if you are jaded with Australian wine and you feel like you've seen it all, then you, you are entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. That's, that's you, your, your view is not the right one because I can, I can promise you there's lots of people doing interesting things and focusing on small vineyards and making them in a, in a very hands-off way and 
you, um, you just need to seek work a bit harder. You need to dig a little deeper. But Australia is, is in my view, and of course I'm biased, probably the most <laughs> dynamic, you know, wine scene happening at the moment. Particularly, yeah. and again, this has got a fair amount of bias in it, but the Yarra Valley is amazing because there's, at the moment, you know, I could list 20 people out there doing incredible things that small batches, weird stuff, but making wonderful wine, beautiful wine that is mm-hmm. very original and, yeah, and that's that's exciting. So I, the next 10, you know, 15 years, particularly in Victoria and the Yarra Valley are going to be... It is just getting better and better. I think so. And it's in the right direction as well. It's kind of, uh, if we kind of drag it as, you know, in that direction from a small point of view, from the guy or the girl who are just making a handful of barrels, you know, they want to grow, but they started off making a handful of barrels from something... You know, from an interesting place because they think it's it's got merit, and mm. that, you know that's that's the kind of that's the Australia that we kind of need to sell overseas, and and yeah, uh, it's cool. I it's mean, great. it feels I feel very fortunate to be around at this time and working on the era, and um, it's I think it's probably the hardest time as well. I think it's probably yeah. the hardest time that. Um, I think everyone's going to come out of it stronger. I think well, so. Well, maybe not everyone. But <clears throat> the people think, who do come out of it, yeah. Will be better for it, and I, I hope that you know the bigger end of town, you know the bigger companies get you know get through it as well. I, I kind of hope that they make slightly different wine. If mm-hmm. you know, I'm honest, I wish that they kind of pegged it back a bit and made um, you know wine more in the style of carafe wine from Italy, kind of thing. Things, mm-hmm. things that were had you know delivered on food compatibility and you can and make wine that essentially still is Australian, is uniquely Australian, and it is still very palatable. But it isn't all the same. That's that's one of the big problems that I have with a lot of branded, inexpensive Australian wine is it all kind of tastes the same. Yeah. It could come from anywhere. Yeah, and that's that's not what wine's about, right? No. Wine is about, uh, you know, a place, a time, mm-hmm. a vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and with- that can translate to a larger scale. You can still look at what De Bortley's in the Yarra Valley do amazing, amazing things mm. on a larger scale. An amazing value. An incredible value. You buy a bottle of Windy Peak... It has an identity. That wine, mm-hmm. that is a wine that's not expensive, but it has a thumbprint. Mm-hmm. You can recognise it A as De Bortley's, B as Yarra Valley, C as Pinot Noir. It's mm-hmm. like if if more larger companies kind of rolled that way, then yeah, we'd be laughing. Do you have a website? Yep. Yep. So um, how can how can people get in contact with you? Uh, emails the best via the website. Yep. LukeLambertWines.com. To, to find out where they can find your wines out in the markets. Yep. Um, fantastic. Well, I uh, really appreciate you uh, making some time for me, Luke, no amidst sense. all this disgorging and, and boiling. <laughs> no um, but thanks for dropping by. Thanks. Okay, guys. Uh, thanks again for listening to The Vincast. Uh, you can follow me at Intrepid Wino or at The Vincast on Twitter. Uh, please like me on Facebook uh, at facebook.com uh, forward slash intrepid wino please subscribe to the podcast uh, and make sure you rate and comment and we will see you next time bye bye